Welcome to Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're talking about mythos deity, Niall Arthotep. The crawling chaos himself. But before we descend into chaos, crawling or otherwise, what is going on? How's your breakfast, Matt? Not bad, yeah. I hear you've had something new for breakfast recently. Yeah, at the house we've got ourselves three little chickens... Yeah, or not so little anymore. They've been growing rapidly after abundance of corn and watermelon. But yeah, my pet, my pets finally shit breakfast in the morning. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it works quite like that, but okay. Well, it comes out the same hole. <laughs> Good. Right. Okay. No, no, they've just started producing the first eggs, double yokers. So I'm, I'm a happy man. Okay. So what else has been happening apart from Matt's pets giving him <laughs> breakfast? Well... We wrapped up, or I say we, I, my, my playtest group, finally, after four years, wrapped up our playtest of a poison tree. So this is the epic campaign that uh, Matt, Paul and I are writing for Trail of Cthulhu, that uh, we're in the process of trying to wrap up at the moment, you know, the, the actual writing part of it, you know, just, just the small details. Ah. And um, I, I just really want to thank my, my playtest group for basically putting up with, with all the chaos and the changes. And so thank you very much to uh, Ollie Palmer, Michael Dahl, Tony Parry, David Smith and Nigel Clark. And in addition to running a four-year playtest, I hear you've also been running another campaign at the same time. You are a glutton for punishment, Scott. Yes, another project that the three of us worked on, which is The Two-Headed Serpent, published last year for Bob Cthulhu. I have been running it for the How We Roll podcast. We've been doing this for some time, but because there have been other, other projects in the pipeline and, you know, things happening in, in Joe Trier's life, like uh, the arrival of his new son, so congratulations to Joe and Sarah there. It's taken a little while to get these episodes out. And I really hope by the time this episode goes out, the first one or two episodes of The Two-Headed Serpent will be available from, from How We Roll. I shall put a link in the show notes. And now on to our main topic, Mythos Deity, Niall Arthotep. This is part of our continuing series of looks at Mythos Deities, focusing this time on probably the most used, or certainly the most versatile deity in the Mythos Pantheon, Niall Arthotep. We've done a few episodes which have touched on this before, mainly talking about stories or campaigns in which Niall Arthotep has appeared. Uh, we looked at him in The Haunter of the Dark, back in episodes 14 and 15. Uh, the Dreams in the Witch House in episodes 34 and 35. The Masks of Nearthletep Companion in episode 47. He also appeared in our top three Mythos Deities in episode 67. And The Masks of Nearthletep 5th edition for episodes 133 and 134. And I guess that tells you just something already, that he's appeared so many times in so many guises. Yeah, and we'll try to work out exactly why this is the case. The fact that he's got a thousand faces probably you know, is, is a good start. Shall we start with where he was conceived? So it's conceived by H.P. Lovecraft in a dream. In 1920, Lovecraft had a dream. He dreamt that his friend, Samuel Loveman, had sent him a letter saying, Don't fail to see Niall Arthotep if he comes to Providence. He is horrible. Horrible beyond anything you can imagine, but wonderful. He haunts one for hours afterwards. I am still shuddering at what he showed. And Lovecraft, I mean, upon awaking from the stream, sat down and immediately started writing before he'd even fully woken up and started writing the story that would become the prose poem Nialothotep. The name Nialothotep appeared to him in the dream at the same time. It's an interesting name. I mean, obviously it sounds Egyptian and in the story he is described as being probably from Egypt. The name for a start, I mean, Hotep, as an honorific in Egyptian names, roughly translates as to be at peace or is pleased. I'm guessing it's probably more the latter in Nialothotep's case. And it also seems to be influenced, perhaps subconsciously or, or not, from Lord Dunsany's tales in which he has a character or a god named Minarithitep, which isn't a million miles from Nialothotep. And we do know Lovecraft was a big fan of Dunsany. 
Yeah, and there was a, also a, a prophet in a little vignette that Dunsany wrote called Alhirithotep, or Hotep, from the story Alhirithotep the Prophet. So again, that, that might have been on Lovecraft's mind. But these are just kind of the seed of Nilarthotep, right? It's just a place where it was first thought up. But how has he been used and what is he, as your question posed, Scott? He goes by many names, right? So he's the crawling chaos, the messenger of the gods. He seems to be, there are these group of gods, called the, sometimes called the outer gods. There's Yogg-Sothoth and Azathoth and so on. And they are these otherworldly presences that we can't really conceive of or meet. They're, they're very strange, otherworldly things. Well, but and, and also more interestingly described as mindless. Uh-huh. Which, which you know, becomes Certainly quite interesting Azathoth, in this yeah. concept. And yeah. So we've got Nilarthotep, who is their messenger or perhaps their soul, and is able to converse with humanity in a way that we can't converse with these gods directly. Yeah, which opens up all sorts of interesting questions, which is, you know, if we do have these gods that are mindless or exist so far beyond human comprehension, why would they want to converse with us? How would they want to converse with us? What would they want to say to us? It almost goes against one of the central tenets of the Cthulhu mythos, which is, you know, this is a cold, uncaring universe. Mankind is as nothing in it. And the, the gods, such as they are, these alien entities beyond our understanding, don't care about us. And yet, at the same time, they do care about us enough to have a messenger. I mean, there's another paradox there as well, which we see perhaps in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which is Nialothotep is the messenger of these gods, uh, which makes it sound like he is a servant or, you know, some kind of tool that they use. But at the same time, he also seems to exert control over them and, and almost seems to be like a shepherd or something, you know, keeping them in line. And so, again, what is his role? What does he do? What is he? Now, we first meet Nalathotep in the story of that same name by Lovecraft, a very short story in which Nalathotep is a showman, uh, a man who comes out of the East, uh, a man of Arabian origin, and who you know, shows off technology to strange ends. He spoke much of the sciences, of electricity and psychology, and gave exhibitions of power which sent his spectators away speechless. And Will Murray, in uh, an article in Lovecraft Tales back in the early 1990s, linked these depictions from the Arthotep with shows that Nikola Tesla was doing at the time. It was travelling over the US in particular and, and showing off all sorts of things to do with you know, static electricity and, and alternating current and things that we now think of as Tesla coils and Jacob's ladders and stuff like that. And so, you know, the, the, this was in the public consciousness at the time and probably had some influence on, on Lovecraft. And it says in that story that he's risen up out of the blackness of 27 centuries, which Murray puts around the 22nd dynasty of Egypt, around 940 to 730 BCE. Which was apparently around the time that Egypt was ruled by Ethiopians, I believe. That would make Nialothotep of Ethiopian origin, if, if you follow that. But Joshi has something quite different. Joshi has it down as putting it in 2500 BCE, back in the 4th dynasty. And in his annotated book, Leslie Klinger comments that Joshi's maths don't really add up. But either way, he apparently came out of Egypt a long time ago. And when he came to, to our world in Lovecraft's time, he brought the seeds of destruction with him. And through this revolting graveyard of the universe, the muffled, maddening beating of drums and thin, monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time, the detestable pounding and piping whereunto danced slowly, awkwardly and absurdly the gigantic, tenebrous, ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles whose soul is Neathletep. And so we see, even from this first appearance where Nialothotep appears in, in what is very much a human guise, that he is still linked with the cosmic, that he is still, in this roving showman, very much the essence of these gods from beyond space and time and beyond our understanding. And in various stories, we see him portrayed radically differently. Uh, in The Haunter of the Dark, he's, well, he is the Haunter of the Dark, right? But 
an avatar of Narlathotep in some form. In The Shadow from the Steeple, the sequel to Haunter of the Dark by Robert Block, we see him as Dr. Ambrose Dexter. Is there a human form of uh, Narlathotep again? Well, it's, that, that's a subtly different one because uh, you know, Ambrose Dexter started out as a character in, towards the end of The Haunter of the Dark, who was very much human. And whereas we see these human incarnations or human appearances of Narlathotep, in The Shadow from the Steeple, the idea is very much that Narlathotep has possessed mm. Dr. Dexter. So we're, we're sort of seeing a different aspect of him there, that this isn't him putting on a guise, this is him taking on a vessel. There are a lot of different aspects from Nyarlathotep. I checked out the Cthulhu Mythos bibliography and concordance. That was published in 1999, and it lists almost 300 different appearances or references to Nyarlathotep in mythos fiction up to that point. And the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia, Daniel Harms's book, uh, lists 44 different avatars of him there. So what is an avatar of Nyarlathotep? The word avatar implies a god made flesh so a human that has taken on the form of a god yeah it comes out of hinduism so in terms of these people being avatars of Nalathotep, are they all the forms avatars would we say yeah i mean that's that's an interesting question because i will get into this i think a bit more in the gaming aspect of it but not all of these these appearances or masks or whatever you want to call them of Nalathotep are necessarily physical so, you know, can we really talk about them being embodied, if that's the case? And also, I wonder, are we ever meeting Nalathotep itself? Or are we just meeting kind of proxies for Nalathotep? Well, I mean, this goes back to the idea of what Nyarlathotep is. Because this idea of him being the soul of the outer gods, not just their messenger, I mean, it makes it sound like he is some kind of essence of them that has been drawn together I mean, is he a separate entity is he a sort of psychic projection is he a god in himself uh, even the word avatar i mean avatar can technically mean the embodiment of a god but it can also mean the embodiment of an idea so is nihalathet just an idea is he a, a thought form I mean, what is he I mean, it seems to me that Lovecraft, we know, use the same terms and same creatures and characters sometimes in different contexts. And Nalathotep, perhaps more than most, is whatever the story demands. So we're looking to tie them all together and make some sort of cohesive sense of who Nalathotep is. I'm not sure that's even possible, is it? Because he's literally different things in different stories. Yeah, and Lovecraft sets this up quite explicitly early on. Uh, not not in the story of Nialathotep itself, but in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, uh, Nialathotep appears in person. Towards the end of the story, Randolph Carter meets him. Nialathotep at this point appears in a very sort of pleasing human guise. Then down the wide lane betwixt the two columns, a lone figure strode. A tall, slim figure with the young face of an antique pharaoh, gay with prismatic robes and crowned with a golden scent that glowed with inherent light. Close up to Carter strode that regal figure, whose proud carriage and swart features had in them the fascination of a dark god or fallen archangel, and round whose eyes there lurked the languid sparkle of capricious humour. It spoke, and in its mellow tones there rippled the mild music of Lethean streams. This is a very pleasing aspect of Nyarlathotep. This is a beautiful youth uh, who is playful, who is charming. But he warns Carter, pray to all space that you never meet me in my thousand other forms. This is something that you know, I, I, I got thinking about, which is the use of the word thousand. I mean, we've taken it, I think, in the Call of Cthulhu RPG uh, as being canon that you know, he has a thousand forms. But I think as with you know, Shubnigarath, the, the Black God of the Woods with the Thousand Young, and lots of other references to the, the number thousand in Lovecraft stories, it almost strikes me as being like the biblical idea of 40 days and 40 nights representing a long period of time. You know, an exaggerated amount you put in as a placeholder mm. for a real value. So I don't think that we should necessarily take it as read that he has a thousand forms. He has as many forms as he needs. Perhaps the most common manifestation of Nalathotep in Call of Cthulhu is the Black Pharaoh. Based upon the Robert Block story, The Fane of the Black Pharaoh, Lovecraft mentions Nefren Kar, and Block builds upon this. 
but changes it slightly so that instead of being an avatar of Nyarthotep in his own right, Nefrinkar is actually a priest, albeit an undying one, and the Sphinx, which we see in Lovecraft's Under the Pyramids, is an avatar of Nyarthotep. Yeah, I don't think in the fiction, in either Lovecraft or, or Block, we ever see Nefrinkar actually as anything other than a priest or a pharaoh. Mm. So, you know, this whole idea of the Black Pharaoh being Nyarlathotep, I think it's something that came in either with later stories or perhaps even with Call of Cthulhu itself. So there's a name on your notes, Scott, that I recognise, Reverend Nye who I believe you uh, used in a scenario for the Blasphemous Tome last year. Yeah, so I mean, Reverend Nye comes out of Robert Block's Strange Eons, which is a novel that he wrote in the late 70s, which I am in the process of writing an article about, which will be in the Blasphemous Tome issue 4. I think one of the, the overlooked gems of the Cthulhu mythos. In it, the Reverend Nye is this avatar of Nyarlathotep, who is very much in the, the mould of the original one. But he is there to basically bring about the end of days, to call forth Cthulhu from Relier, and to bring the final doom down upon mankind through the instrument of the Starry Wisdom. I mean, that's one of the things I wonder about Nyarlathotep, really. Why does he want to bring about the doom of mankind? Mm. Why, if he's the soul or messenger of this whole bunch of cosmic gods... Humanity is going to be there, you know, for a few blinks of their existence. Why are they even bothered? It's like... Mm. Yeah. Every god's got to have a hobby. <laughs> well, I guess perhaps it's just amusement on their part, but... Yeah, yeah, like a cat playing with a mouse or something, but... It seems a very humanocentric view of what the gods would be interested in. We sort of see an aspect of that even more so in the Dreamcast of Unknown Kadath, because Nyarlathotep's interactions with, with Randolph Carter, I mean, as well as him being you know, this charming, beautiful youth, he actually ends up offering Carter some fairly good advice. Carter has gone off into the dreamlands to try to discover this beautiful city that he's, he's dreamed of three times and wants to visit again, wants to learn where it is and learn how to visit it at will. Nialathotep, towards the end, says, well, hang on, this, this city you're looking for, you've cobbled it together out of lots of childhood memories of out of places in New England. You know, all the things that you love about it are places in the waking world. Go back there and enjoy them during your life. Almost warm-hearted, good, sage advice cutting through a lot of Carter's bullshit. Of course, you know, Nialathotep then puts him on board a Shantak and sends him off into the depths of space to, to, to try to kill him, but, you know, what, what can you do? So it seems almost like these avatars of Nalathotep, they're not Nalathotep. Almost like they're just a fragment of him, like they've got a little bit of him inside them that gives them some cosmic understanding, but they don't necessarily fully understand everything of Nalathotep's mind. I'm almost wondering, picturing it is, is like, you know, Nyarlathotep is a signal that's being broadcast from beyond. And you've got all these radio receivers, you know, these damaged receivers that are picking up parts of the signal, just, you know, little bits of it here and there, different parts of the broadcast, and, you know, picking up little bits uh, that other ones aren't, and giving what appear to be entirely different messages out of a whole that is beyond the capabilities of any single one of them receiving. Yeah, I would compare it to the story of Jesus. So Jesus is a part of the Christian God, but he's kind of separate to the Christian God. He's not an embodiment of everything that God is, as far as I can see it in the Bible. He's kind of limited. At times, his faith is challenged. You know, he can turn water into wine, apparently, but if he's God, that's not really that impressive for a guy that, you know, invented the whole cosmos <laughs> in a week, if we're to take that story literally. You know, so if we parallel Nalathotep and the avatars of Nalathotep in that way that the Christian God and Jesus are, because I think there's this conception that, that the avatars are just the same as the God Nalathotep, and I'm kind no. of thinking that's not the case. No, I, I'd see them as being very different things. And I think you could have quite a lot of fun with this. I mean, perhaps jumping ahead slightly to, to the gaming bid, I'd be tempted to have... Not only, you know, each avatar be very different things in terms of their appearance and their knowledge and and their mission, their desire, their their goals, to the extent where each one doesn't necessarily know what the others are doing or perhaps even of the existence of the others. 
you could have two or more avatars working at cross purposes, maybe working in direct opposition to each other, because they either don't know or don't care what the other avatar is doing. And this, to me, is summed up in the name The Crawling Chaos. You know, he is chaos. He is bringing chaos uh, with him. He is chaos. So what could be more chaotic than having lots of different versions of yourself, knowing different things, doing wildly different actions? Mm. Which I think then reinforces some of these many different masks he's got in different stories and how they portray the characteristics differently and how some of them might want to bring about the end of the world for their own perverse reasons just because they've got some conception of the you know the cosmic gods and so on they might think it's a good thing to bring about the end of the world and they're being embodied or reborn or possessed by Nalathotep in the form of a human being so it's only natural they're going to be interested in human beings you know focusing on that thing about bringing about the end of the world I think in some respects, that is the least interesting thing you can do with Nialathotep, because it, it's sort of the big bad villainous plan that you expect from a Call of Cthulhu villain. You know, he's obviously here to bring about the end of mankind. And I think smaller, weirder plans are perhaps more unsettling than that, because they subvert expectations. Hmm. Now, well, I was quite surprised to learn. I think the first time I actually discovered the connection here was when I was reading through the Malice Monstorum is the connection between Stephen King with his character Randall Flagg and the Arthur Um Scott informed me a while back that it's actually part of an interview where he came out and said, well, actually, yeah, Flagg is an avatar of the Arthur even though it's not inherently and blatantly stated in the stories in which he appears. Hmm. Yeah, and... I mean, this is almost taking Nyarlathotep back to its roots in, you know, this very human presentation of him. That, I mean, we, we see, you know, perhaps in some of King's fiction, like, you know, some of the Dark Tower stuff, the, the, you know, hints of a more monstrous aspect behind Randall Flagg. But, well, the um, Crimson King and all that kind of yeah. pantheon behind him. But, but at the same time, you know, he appears in our world as being very much a human being. Do you think these human representations of Nyarlathotep in a game would make him more or less interesting? Well, I think more interesting in that they're a character you can play and interact with as a player character. Whereas if you encounter Azathoth or Yogg-Sothoth, you can't really role-play with those. I guess you could have a manifestation of those in a human form or some form you could role-play with, but generally they're not. In a game, I think that's definitely more interesting. Well, there's only one that I can think of that's communicable, and that's Tamar of Luir, which I can never pronounce right. Yeah. The, um, the guide that, again, Carter, because he pops up everywhere, <laughs> uses to get to the ultimate gate in through the, uh, yeah, through the gates of the Silver Key. And who's meant to be an avatar of Azathoth, is it? Yogg-Sothoth. Yogg, right. Uh, yes. the, only, the only other instance of an avatar of Azathoth I can think of isn't communicable. It's this monster in the bottom of a pit, which I think is in a Clark Ashton Smith story, but don't hold me to it. It's kind of easy to fall into different traps and sort of use him as a, a Bond villain type. Here is my master plan. Let me just scheme and toy with you a bit. Wahaha, aren't I evil? It's the kind of thing that you can do a few times, and, and if you do it well and imaginatively, it's going to be fun. But you don't want to do that over and over again. And one that I'm curious about, Niaruku, Crawling with Love, a series of Japanese light novels that depict Nalathotep as a Japanese schoolgirl. It's adapted into a TV series called Heori. Niaruku, Remember My Mr. Lovecraft. If that isn't Lovecraftian, I don't know what it is. I was going to say that's something you might get from using the cut-up technique, because those words <laughs> strung together make no goddamn sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need to look this one up. Yeah, apparently it is sort of a teenage romantic comedy with a, a hapless Japanese schoolboy encountering this silver-haired schoolgirl who is Nialathotep and uh, brings in you know human incarnations of other mythos deities and... I feel both simultaneously absolutely drawn to watch it and so completely repelled that I'm not sure I can. If anybody can beat that, please let us know. And now we take a look at Nyarlathotep in Call of Cthulhu. So for all the reasons we've just listed, Nyarlathotep is probably the most used deity in the game, The Call of Cthulhu. Not only does he have a massive campaign that uses his name, but he crops up in numerous scenarios. And in the Malleus Monsterum, there's about 30 or 40 iterations of him as, a, as an avatar. 
And even then, when it comes to just listing human avatars, you've got about half a dozen in there. Should we just list off a few of the strange ones that we, we see? Well, there were a few particularly that I picked out because one thing that happens a lot is people using entities from mythology or even religion as some of the masks of Neolithic. It almost seems like people have just gone round and any figure from, well, not necessarily other cultures, but any culture or religious figures, they could be in Alathotep. Yeah, I mean, he is sort of the Swiss Army penknife of gods because he has these these thousand forms. This means that if you have a random entity in a game, by far the easiest default answer to it is it's Neolithotep. I want to see a Swiss Army knife now with a thousand blades. <laughs> it appears as the black wind, for one thing. Just the wind. Yes. The bloated woman? Yep. I was going to say he had a mountain named after him. I'm surprised if he didn't have. The bloody tongue? The green man? The green man of folklore? That's an Arthtep. I like the fact jack-o'-lanterns in there as well. You've, you Basically, you have an avatar of the Arthtep, the image of one on your doorstep every Halloween. Going back to the old Charlie Brown comics, the Arthtep is the great pumpkin. Yes, indeed. Apparently. Uh, Pazuzu? Yeah. Oh, that, that's going to be news to Robin, isn't it? <laughs> or is it? <laughs> the skinless one? Thoth. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of what I was talking about before with, with taking deities from other cultures. Because we see it with Set as well. The Wicker Man? He is the film. He is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the Horned Man as well, from a representation of perhaps Pan or a Satyr. There's one from the, the Malice Monstorum that yeah, sort of, I think, straddles a line for me, and that's Baron Samadhi, the, the Voodoo Lower. So, I mean, voodoo is you know, a religion that, that people practice in the modern day. It's one thing to take figures from folklore and folk belief and, and you know, turn those into you know, mythos deities or use them as masks for Nyarlathotep. I think once you start getting into religious figures and, and taking gods or spirits out of other people's religions and saying, oh, actually, no, this is really you know, a, a monster from beyond space and time wearing that mask and tricking all its, its followers into believing that it is this religious figure. I, I, I think that borders on, on being uncomfortable for me. Hmm. We were, you know, kind of joking before we recorded about, you know, whether we'd ever do a, a scenario where Jesus was was an avatar of Neartheteb, and you know, just imagining the outcry that would happen, you know, if if we did that. I mean, is it really much different to to you know use a figure like Baron Samadhi and and you say, oh no, no, he's really Neartheteb. I'm Neartheteb, and so is my wife. <laughs> And switching from Call of Cthulhu, only just jumping the tracks a tiny bit, we go over to Delta Green and we've got Stephen Alziz. Oh, over, yeah. Um, well, that, that's one interpretation of him. Well, it is, but it's a fairly strongly indicated one, right? It's, it's one of the options given in the Fate um, chapter book. Yeah. Alongside other things that he could just be an immortal sorcerer, he could be the Phantom of Truth, he could be a wizard, he could be a whole load of things. But I think that's listed as the kind of the default. Yeah, this is kind of the version that we're. And his whole kind of club apocalypse, and he's very much that kind of human embodiment of that ultimate cool dude. Yeah, technology always works when he wants it to, so his mobile phone will always have a connection. He's, you know, he can pass through airports with without a passport. Seemingly, everything is just at his beck and call. Apparently, he's a walking fashion crime. I remember him being described as. Oh, did you think? Yeah, because he mix mix and matches different designer labels all together. Well, that's the great evil. <laughs> right fashion <there>. crime. <laughs> but apparently, in the new edition, I was reading, he's um. Since the kind of nine eleven, some of his people got taken out or removed, and he's not really been seen on the scene so much for for quite a while. So I think they've downplayed him. I, I haven't read the whole thing, so I might be a little out of touch there. But I believe that's the case. That might also be some setup for the Falling Towers campaign that's coming up as well. Oh, really? Right. Yeah, right. That's one of, one of the stretch goals on the Delta Green Kickstarter was that there's going to be a fake campaign. But I mean, they can always bring him back, right? So, yeah. In Call of Cthulhu itself, there were some pretty weird avatars in there as well. I mean, not, not just from mythology, but two of the ones that caught my eye going through the Malleus Monstorum were the TikTok Man and the Khrushcha Equation. Oh, they are pretty good. One is an artificial intelligence and the other one is a maths problem. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the idea that, that Nyarlathotep is an equation that can be solved and if you solve him, that's not good for you. 
that, that's pretty much. Uh, congratulations, you've spent the last almost year of your life trying to solve this equation. You have just ended your character's life. Congrats. <laughs> but ultimately, I always like going back to the the human incarnations. Um, you know, as, as Paul mentioned earlier, I did borrow the Reverend Nye from Strange Eons and, and used him in a uh, scenario that I did some time back. And one of the things that I love about these human incarnations of Nyarlathotep is the fact that he's almost there as a trap in the game, in that you know you, you had this this scheming, obviously evil character, who is obviously just asking for an investigator to shoot him in the face. He's like a Russian doll, or an East, or like a Kinder Surprise egg. Yeah, yeah, very nasty Kinder Surprise. That <laughs> you know, when you kill him, his monstrous form bursts out of the remains of his body. You only make him angry. <laughs> yeah. Well, except in the default mode, he erupts out and then disappears off into the stars. And yeah, he, do, yeah he, he doesn't attack the player characters. He just does, you know, one d ten slash one d one hundred sand loss. Yeah, but he always attacks the characters for a bit, right? Oh, yeah. Flying off. Yeah, it's, it's rude not to. It would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. I was going to say, you kill this mild-mannered-looking guy and suddenly the bloody tongue stomps you. <laughs> that, that, that is almost exactly how it works in the game I wrote. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now let's take a look at how we might use Nalathotep in our gaming. Well, first of all, as, as I hinted at before, do Nalathotep's schemes always have to be... Well, certainly, you know, grand apocalyptic schemes, or even that sinister... I don't know. I think it'd be quite disquieting if, as a an investigator, I did some investigation into you know an entity or a cult or an organisation, and found that it was doing things that I, I I sort of approved of or you know seemed to be fairly benign, and I couldn't necessarily see any real evil underneath. You know, perhaps it seemed a bit weird, but you know, not necessarily threatening. And then learned that Nialthep was behind it, and it it would almost be all the more maddening. It's sort of well, obviously, you know, this is going to lead to the destruction of mankind somehow. Obviously, he's doing this as part of a grand evil scheme, but I can't see what it is. So he's out there raising money and giving food to the poor. Yeah. But it's Nalathotep, so we've got to bring it down. Yeah. Right. And and you know 90% of Call of Cthulhu groups would do that. Well, I guess. Would they? I don't know. It's something that I do every now and then. In games, it's... It's almost like a, a version of the Milgram experiment. It's sort of, you dangle a hint of the mythos in front of someone and you see whether they'll destroy it, even though it seems to be completely benign. Well, and you did this in one of your scenarios in The Two-Headed Serpent, that there is a cult in there which is fundamentally benign. I mean, it's weird, it is a bit creepy in places, but it is only fundamentally doing good things for people. And yet... Every time you put a Call of Cthulhu group or you know, Pop Cthulhu group through that, they see, oh, Mythos Cult, destroy, destroy, kill, kill, kill. Mm. Because, oh, it's a bit weird. And I think it'd be exactly the same in this. I mean, you know, you, you could have him being, you know, the greatest charitable figure on the planet, but as soon as the player characters learn his Neolithotep, they're going to want to destroy his organisation. Yeah, generally, almost for that reason, that the minute you put him into a scenario as being the overt bad guy... I've tried to steer away from that in the few times I've used him. The one time I used him to the greatest extent uh, was that he was actually in just an observer. I say he, it. Uh, mainly because they did time with uh, someone trying to ascend up to the court of Az Azathoth, so he's almost seeing it as a yeah, kind of seeing how the new guy's going to fare out, so getting almost like doing an interview stage with him from, a, uh, from afar before he finally gets up to the, his boss's digs. But it certainly gave the players food for thought when they worked out who it was that was up in the uh, in the audience watching what was unfolding. <laughs> and I think, okay, is he really here, the person being behind this? He's just sat there, smoking a cigar, watching what's happening in this theatre. Yeah. But it, it gave them, a say, a wonderful kind of look, over, always looking over their shoulder moment, wondering what the hell is that guy going to do? And it really put them on edge. You could almost build on that. I mean, if following something like that, what if Nyalthotep... Yeah, almost as he did with Randolph Carter, takes a liking to the investigators. Mm. That scenario wraps up, and they're on to another scenario later on. And he just pops up randomly to buy them a drink or something like that and just you know catch up and see how things are going. <laughs> he doesn't have any scheme. He's not trying to push them in any way. He just knows that they did something that interested him before. He wants to see what they're up to now. And he's catching up you know, almost like a colleague. Yeah, or even thinks, you're looking a bit bored. I'll make life a bit more interesting for you. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it could really keep them off balance if sometimes he offers them genuine help, sometimes he, you know, just does something really horrible because he can, mm. and they're, they're never quite sure which way it's coming. 
was not one of the interpretations of N in World War Cthulhu also that it could be Nalathotep. Yeah, yeah. It was, who is it, ostensibly being helpful, right? Yeah, I mean, it was always a multiple choice thing in World War Cthulhu. You, you as the Keeper, choose what, what N, the spymaster who's actually giving the missions to all the investigators is. He could be, you know, an old Call of Cthulhu investigator who's very experienced and has, has learnt about the dangers of the mythos and is, is trying to save the world. He could be, you know, a sorcerer who is trying to gather all these these mythos artifacts and tomes and you know gather power for himself or yeah he could just be Nialathotep and and you know everything that he's doing that seems to be benign is just him subtly fucking with the world very subtly though because he's fighting fascism and helping the allies i'm not quite sure where any um you know malign intent would sort of be indicated there in a Call of Cthulhu game, we quite often say that the schemes or the ideas or the motivations of these these outer gods and of Nialathotep are beyond human understanding. You know, this is perhaps how they're presented to the player characters. And yet there is always the assumption that we as scenario writers are going to say in you know, the scenario in a very reductive way, oh yeah, this is why it's happening. You know, it's, uh, you know this is what his motivation is. And... That, that again seems to be pulling the rug out from the whole idea of it being ineffable. I, I, I understand why a keeper needs to perhaps understand how to present stuff consistently in the game. But I think sometimes it's more unnerving to present facets of this that, you know, this is what the motivation is in this scene, this is what it is in this scenario, this is what Nialathotep is, you know, this specific goal that he's trying to accomplish here. And that perhaps they all do seem to contradict each other. And just sort of explain to the Keeper behind the scenes that, yeah, I mean, these are just completely chaotic to human eyes. You can't see where all the pieces come together, but just betray them in this particular way in these but particular you're parts. Know, yeah, but you're knowing what those individual goals are. That's the thing, I think. Oh, the, these individual the, actions, yeah. Because yeah. without yeah. those, it just becomes very aimless, I think, yeah. for the Keeper. You know, it's like... How do I portray this? What what actually is this character Nalathotep trying to achieve? You don't necessarily need to know his absolute end goal, but you need to know what his objectives along the track are. Now, building on this, I mean, can you think of any interesting ways to present avatars of Nalathotep that that are more than just big gribbly monsters? So there's a spell contact Nalathotep in the book. And the technique I've used one time was to have the one of the characters got hold of the spell, as they do, and decided to cast it. It was a modern-day setting. And so they cast the spell, and nothing really happened. And I told them that you know, they weren't really sure if it had been successful or not. And then the adventure progressed. And then later on, they're in the house with the other player characters, and there's a knock at the door, and there's a travelling salesman, you know, perhaps selling dusters or whatever. And uh, as they greet the travelling salesman, a couple of them answer the door, and one of them is the spellcaster. So the travelling salesman is just giving the usual patter, but between the words, if you like, and facing the, the spellcaster as the keeper, I told them what they actually hear, which is like Narthtep's voice talking to them in their head. Hmm. Uh, whereas all the other players are just, they're just hearing, you know, do you want to buy some dusters? So it's almost like, is this actually Nalathotep talking to me? Or is this a delusion? Particularly if they've got temporary insanity or whatever, then it becomes a bit of a grey area, perhaps. And the other players are going to wonder, is this genuinely Nalathotep or is it not? I, I like the idea of him being a vacuum cleaner salesman in particular, because it ties in with uh, that sonnet from the fungi from Yogurt, uh, which ends, the idiot chaos blew Earth's dust away. Oh, I mean, there that, you go. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that could yeah. be the tagline for the vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Riffing off part of the entry in the jack-o'-lantern said that he could connect with all the other jack-o'-lanterns and carved pumpkins in an area <laughs> and project his, his will and his fiery presence through them and start driving whole townships insane. Well, I kept thinking back to the thing... The th or rather, the, th the thing from another world, the one about the, oh, the, giant, the giant carrot, yeah. the giant vampire carrot. Yes, <laughs> and thinking, what if Neartheletep could manifest its presence through certain life forms or certain growths, like vegetables, 
for instance. So you could have this nice little rural community and all of a sudden just weird things start happening with the veg. You could almost layer it as being a setting up very much like, yeah, yeah, this is this is a colour out of space, guys. It's all going a little bit weird. You've got this weird growth. And then, no, it doesn't have this glowing ball of light come up from the ground. It has a giant stomping vegetable patch um, that is almost like a crawling one, that it's a, the collection of maggots act as one. But no, it's the marrows and the potatoes are going to stomp on your ass until you're dead. This mm. is just an embodiment of your fear of vegetables, Matt. <laughs> Damn straight! <laughs> the, the, produ- <laughs> the cucumber from hell! Yeah. The, the produce of the outer gods! Yeah. <laughs> is that um, an organic veg box or a, a horror from beyond space and time? Yeah, just organic is horrible and terrible <laughs> enough as it is. Uh, and also, you know, could it be embodied not just in vegetable form, but maybe in pasta form? Oh, the flying <laughs> spaghetti monster, monster is indeed now. But is this not cultural appropriation now? <laughs> he Sorry, boiled. are we not taking, you know, an, another's God? He boiled for our sins after all. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> When I was thinking about avatars, I was drawn to the fact that there are a couple of the examples in the Malleus Monstorum of avatars that do not have physical forms. So like the whatchamacallit, the Khrushchev equation, that they, they almost seem to be ideas more than physical monsters. And the other day I was listening to a podcast where someone was talking about his experiences of a condition called uh, pure OCD or pure O, a, a form of OCD where... It doesn't come with the compulsive side of things, where you have obsessive, intrusive thoughts that dominate your, your thinking. And it's, I mean, it's not quite the same as a psychotic delusion. It's not you know, a schizophrenic hearing voices, because they are thoughts. You know, they're, they're not auditory hallucinations. You're not seeing things. I, and I think you know, everyone gets these to some extent, where you, you, know, you suddenly get strange impulses or thoughts come into your head. That whole idea of you know, standing at the edge of a cliff and, and you know, wanting to jump off or push someone else off. Do you want to tell us more about these strange thoughts you get that you think everyone else gets, Scott? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Let's move on. Yeah, it got me thinking that a particularly scary avatar of Nyarlathotep could be one that takes the form of intrusive thoughts, that you know, someone who doesn't have an obsessive personality suddenly starts getting these intrusions, you know, the, these, these impulses to do terrible things. And, you know, it's, it's not something that they're compelled to act upon, but, um, you know, it's just this constant thing of, wouldn't it be interesting to dropkick this baby or sitting there eating dinner and you've got a fork in your hand, you know, I, I really should stab Paul in the face with this fork. I really yeah. should write a new edition of Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. Kind of crazy oh, things yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, well, let's not go that far. Let's <laughs> <laughs> have some taste. Um, but, yeah, the idea that these intrusions could then, you know, if someone is going through a, you know, a bout of madness or particularly a period of indefinite insanity, they could start become something a bit more insidious and dangerous. But also the fact that these could be communicable. So what happens to these? This avatar, you know, gets hold into someone's head. It's almost like the possession we see in the Shadow from the Steeple, but at the same time, it's it's a bit more loose than that, and that it starts spreading from person to person. That people are all getting these these intrusive impulses. And what if somebody was possessed by this spirit, as as you've said, Scott, a little bit about you know having these strange thoughts and and you know communicating them. And they were able to like set up a podcast and actually communicate their thoughts directly into mm. people's minds. Oh, what were you saying, that's, Scott? That's, that's are people, too horrible to think of, Paul. But are people it? really listening to what you're saying, Scott? Are you hearing Scott's thoughts no, they're in just your mind? His, they just hear his singing. <laughs> that's even worse. The singing is just the vehicle for it, surely. That's Li- opened listen- up your neural pathways to Scott's inner thoughts. Listener, the podcast stopped ten minutes ago. This is all just happening in your head. Your phone went dead ten minutes ago and we're still here. Well, now that we've driven all the listeners away, does anyone have any scenario seeds relating to Neolithotep that, that have come to mind? Yeah, we, other than just after lunch where we were thinking about the weirder avatars... Having looked through the reading of the Khrushchev equation, uh, and back to the TikTok man has been two of my favourites. The TikTok man is effectively an artificial intelligence that needs a computer or some kind of mechanical vessel to inhabit. A supercomputer, in this case, would be great. The Khrushchev equation is a problem. What if you have an artificial intelligence supercomputer trying to solve the equation? 
Neartha-tep summons Neartha-tep and possesses Neartha-tep. You have a wonderful loop! Neartha-tep yeah, inception. Yeah. To ten, destroy humanity. Twenty, go to ten. Yes. <laughs> Just what, what the hell would happen? I think... In my former life as a sysadmin, that I have actually seen this happen a few times. <laughs> it would explain an awful lot of the weirder things I encountered in my career. Now, there are a couple that sprung to mind for me. One is sort of playing upon what we were talking about before, about um, apparently benign goals on Nialathotep's part. Nialathotep really loves playing with people, a bit like a, a cat playing with mice. The, this you know, is maybe a game to him and a game that he enjoys. So when it comes around to the end of days, when you know the the great old ones return and lay waste to humanity and and to the globe, I mean, surely that means the end of his playground. So I, I got thinking about what what would happen if there was a cult that Nialathotep had built up, or at least an aspect of Nialathotep that was actually designed to stop that from happening that you know he was there to prevent the great old ones returning prevent the end of days save humanity just so he can carry on tormenting us because he loves tormenting us so much the rituals to prevent this end of days are all particularly cruel ones they do involve torture and human sacrifice and unspeakable rites but it could make the world a pretty unpleasant place right just not bring about the end of uh, humanity yeah yeah. So, so at what point do you say, you know, enough is enough, stop tormenting us, and just bring about the end? You know, particularly if that escalates, as you say. You know, it's one thing if it's perhaps a small localised cult and torturing, you know, a few dozen people. But what if that torment starts spreading and spreading? Is a life of, of torture and torment and, and suffering for humanity better than annihilation? I think we'll soon find out. <laughs> 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 Paul, Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> the other thing that popped into my mind was that there's a little bit from the, the fungi from Yogoth, just a line that says, wild beasts followed him and licked his hands. I really like that image, that the wild beasts are drawn to Nyarlathotep. And it got me thinking of the idea of snake handlers. Snake handlers, you know, see a couple of verses from the Bible as being indicative that they, you know, are immune to poison or have dominion over serpents and, and venomous beasts. That a, a cult around the worship of, of an aspect of Nialathotep that was beloved of these wild beasts might think something similar, that it would be acts of faith for them to go out and interact with really dangerous animals. I mean, maybe this means they're zookeepers, maybe this means they run animal rescue places. I mean, I've read some statistic about there being more lions, uh, no, sorry, more tigers kept as pets in the United States than there are in the wild. And so, you know, th these are obviously really dangerous animals and there are a lot of very strange people keeping them as pets. I mean, the idea that they're doing this as acts of, of religious faith towards Nyarlathotep to me, actually makes more sense than, you know, waking up one morning and thinking, I should keep a tiger as a pet. So You're saying about thoughts that could get in people's heads and make them do such stupid things. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they wouldn't do as much damage as fangs getting in your head. <laughs> but then I, I, I kind of thought, what would happen if these beliefs escalated? That, you know, it wasn't enough just simply to demonstrate their own faith. They had to perform acts of evangelism. That this could involve, say, getting venomous snakes and dropping them in playgrounds or, or children's kindergartens or, you know, going around the, the zoo or wildlife parks and releasing the lions and tigers and other big cats. So people would interact with these dangerous creatures and, you know, those who were truly worthy of Nyarlathotep's love, those who embodied everything that he embodies, they'd be safe. They'd get their hands licked. Yeah, that's right. And everyone else, well, obviously they weren't worthy. So snakes on a plane was actually an act of devotion to the Arthur Tip. <laughs> it does explain so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's that time of the show again. We have Patreon backers to thank. Yay. Yay, the people who support us and give us money and keep this show running. Yay, the lights are still on. And of course, as we've mentioned in a number of previous episodes, we are busy putting together issue four of the Blasphemous Tome. 
This is the backer-only fanzine that we produce for these lovely people who give us money via Patreon. If you want to see how you can secure your own copy or copies, uh, do take a look at the show notes. Uh, we'll put links in there that not only tell you what levels get what numbers of tomes and what types of tomes, but we'll also give you a little sneak preview of, of what to expect from the latest issue. I believe, Matt, that you're, you're doing a scenario for us. Indeed, yes. Yeah, the, uh, the hero affirmed. And, and that's a modern-day one, is it? Oh, yes. Yeah, set around the uh, the wonderful tourist destination and gleaming, shining city on the hill that is Detroit. So, of the various levels we have, um, at the $1 level, we have two new people to thank. And first of all, our thanks go out to Brian Callies. So, thank you very much, Brian. Yes, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. And then we would like to thank David Willems. Thank you, David. Thank you very much, David. Hey, thank you, David. And we have new $5 backers. Regular listeners will know what this entails. When someone is foolhardy enough to back us at the $5 level, we sing to them. Thanks to Maya Kuhn. I hope you enjoy this. Hey, thanks, Maya. Thank you very much, Maya. And the final backer takes us up to the hallowed $5 level where we get to sing to our patrons who donate money at this level. So thank you very much. Oh, this, this is an increase, I, I see. Oh, it is, yes. He stepped it up from $1 to $5, perhaps just with the, uh, the temptation of a lullaby. Well, <laughs> you're in the wrong place for a lullaby. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to think about the dreams that this would bring about. Yeah. What dreams may come. There's a rap with the human face coming right for you. <laughs> And we dedicate this song to Sonny J. Groom. Thank you, Sonny. Yes, thank you, Sonny, and, and uh, good luck. Sonny J. Groom. 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 Meanwhile, on social media. So we have a new iTunes review from Skull9. Ride the night wind with these good friends. Amazing and entertaining podcast for the lore of H.P. Lovecraft. These fellows discuss a wide range of topics that dares the darkest corners. My favourite episodes are the discussions of the Lovecraftian deities, where you are taken for a tour of encyclopedic proportions through relevant works, speculative theories, how to use said deity in your Call of Cthulhu game, and how they, who are seasoned and experienced players and writers for the game, have used the entity in their games. There is just too much good here to list. Please give it a listen. Well, thank you very much, Skull. Uh, that is very much appreciated. And if anyone else feels moved to write a review for us on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast from, we would very much appreciate it. I mean, not only is it nice to hear you say lovely things about us, but it also helps other people find the podcast and improves our ranking and, and generally makes things more visible to the world at large. We've also had some great feedback on our recent episode about insanity in Call of Cthulhu. Eric Setterberg over on Facebook says... Regarding the sanity loss from spellcasting, I tend to play it as an almost sexual addictive kick coming from imposing one's raw will upon the universe, rather than explaining the loss from seeing shocking results. This makes it okay in my mind to tick off sanity from use of even very minor, in inverted commas, innocent spells. Yeah, and I like this concept of it being a kind of an addiction and getting that thrill of using it. Almost like a sexual kick, as he says. It reminds me of season six of Buffy. 
where Willow gets addicted to casting magic. Mm, yeah. Uh, except I, I thought it was very bad, badly handled in that because there weren't really any effects coming out of it and she wasn't really doing much other than behaving like a junkie as it went on. And I think if, if we'd actually seen more effects from the spell casting itself along with that, it would be much more what Eric's talking about here and, and would be much cooler. You realise that puts a track fish in a really fucking dark light right now. <laughs> Especially, especially as the fishing question, the kangaroo. You. <laughs> and David Larkins over on G Plus says, in terms of gaining sanity at the end of a scenario for doing the morally right thing, or taking losses for doing something immoral, I view this sort of mechanic not so much as an attempt to inject a moral system into the game, but perhaps something closer to a secret drive mechanism. In other words, one of the perennial questions in Call of Cthulhu is that of investigator motivation. Why don't we just call the police? Why don't we just get a plane and fly to Monaco until this whole thing blows over? I think if you ask that question, why don't we just call the police, and it was in Scott's game, yeah, you, you're, <laughs> your safety might be a question. There. But I think he's kind of pulling on the idea that the loss of sanity will feed into a, a kind of a... Uh, a motivation to, to mm-hmm. find out this stuff about what's going on, which but, makes complete yeah. sense to me. It's not a moral thing, but it's a, a sort of metagame motivation. It's, yeah. You know, you're not dangling in front of the characters, you're dangling in front of the players. And I think that's something as Keeper you can do when your player characters have a temporary insanity or whatever, that you can, um, with them, rework some of their background story elements... So if you can sort of angle those towards a curiosity in what's going on, that can reinforce um, Mm. their motivation, perhaps. Yeah, I've certainly done exactly that before, that I've given people kind of manias and obsessions and so on as the result of indefinite insanity um, and and huge sand losses that have just aimed them directly at something that is going to happen in the game. And yeah, that works really well. Back over on G+, Linus Larson says... As for insanity mechanics being potentially offensive, people that have personal experiences of mental illness and do not object to the inclusion of insanity mechanics in games rarely write blog posts about it. I think that's a damn good point. Yeah, it's a right observation. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Certainly when, when you know, I was motivated to write uh, you know, about this stuff and, and research it for the episode, it was because I had read lots of you know, angry would be an overstatement but lots of blog posts from people who were disappointed with the representation of mental health and role-playing games and yeah i i think that's a good point there is this you know great excluded middle of people who just you know plain don't care and you know not all of those people are going to be people who haven't experienced the problems there are going to be people who you know have experienced mental illness and you know don't feel offended mm. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, if, if you think that that applies to you um, and you don't mind sharing that, it would be really interesting to hear from some listeners who are, you know, that, that, that excluded middle. People who have had some experience of mental health problems, but, you know, see no problem at all with, with uh, their use in, in Call of Cthulhu. And to wrap up, what final thoughts do we have about... Mythos deity, Niall Arthotep. Yeah, I think he is the most versatile Call of Cthulhu deity for you know, a number of reasons that we've touched upon. The fact that he does interact at a human level, the fact that he has schemes, he has plans, and the fact that he has all these different faces, these masks, these avatars. I think all of these are a perfect combination to creating versatile, varied villains in your game. I think the discussion has been useful for me in my understanding of Nalathotep. I've always struggled with the personification of the deities as kind of all-knowing beings in the game. Whereas if we can have them as just a facet of an all-knowing being, so a limited embodiment of this god within a person, almost like somebody who was... Nalathotep in a previous life and they just have flashes of memory of it and they have it has influences on them but they don't really get the whole picture then I can see using that in a game much more readily 
And also, I mean, that touches upon another thing, which is, you know, when we think of schemes and plans on the part of Nyarlathotep or any other entity, but Nyarlathotep in particular, we tend to think of these in human terms in rational terms, that, you know, when someone has a plan, it's generally a rational thought-out thing. Not always, but generally. But, you know, Nyarlathotep is the personification of thoughts of ideas of concepts that to us are madness they do not fit in human terms and when they fit into you know they go into human minds they create destruction and so as a result portraying them as being insane as 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 nonsensical as counterproductive as uh, as as completely irrational doesn't mean that from the perspective of this alien god that they aren't rational it's just they're they're different. The, these are not human ways of thought. We haven't even mentioned Nikolai Tesla in a waxen mask yet, <laughs> which is basically what Nartep is, right? Yes, yes, exactly. But on that bombshell, I think that's about it for today. So it's a good night from me, cheerio from me, and farewell from me. Sonny J. Groom is at the Chattanooga Choo Choo. <laughs> <laughs>